Hello, and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host, Catherine McKay, and today it's my pleasure to present to you a talk given by Professor Kelly Lee from Simon Fraser University in Canada. Professor Lee joined Sydney Health Ethics recently to present her work on controlling borders during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a bit of a longer episode, but we hope that you will enjoy it. So without further ado, here's Professor Lee and her talk. Thank you so much, Shea, for a lovely introduction. And just to add my thanks to um, University of Sydney and the Australian Global Health Alliance and the colleagues that are working um, this week to really welcome me to Sydney. I haven't been back for a number of years and it's just just a wonderful week so far, catching up with old colleagues um, and, and also hopefully some new colleagues being um, developed as well. I really have enjoyed myself very much. So I appreciate it very much. Um, and it's really probably appropriate that I'm here after um, after such a shutdown of Australia to talk about this subject. It's, it seems a very apt topic to come back to Australia for. Um, and it's something that really brings together the themes of this seminar series uh, around uh, evidence, ethics, and complexity. I'm not sure how much people are aware, but in Australia, um, because of, of um, being so, I think, subject to these measures, but outside of Australia, and I'm one of those people, I've often held up the country as a role model for a lot of other countries on how to use border, um, to do border management, to use travel measures. But on the other hand, I'm also aware that there's been a heavy price to pay for many of these measures and that we're only really beginning to understand that. So I think in that sense, border measures and travel um, restrictions particularly is a really ideal topic to kick off this series. And so I'm very um, pleased to be able to share some of the research that we've done over the last few years. And before I really get into that research and to um, really review the, some of the findings that we've had, I just wanted to acknowledge that our team is, um, is the Pandemics and Borders Project. We started out uh, scrambling in March 2020 when all this was unfolding, and it literally was just a handful of us who really um, got together and was scratching our heads about what was going on. And over the last three years, we've grown into quite a large group, and quite a multidisciplinary group, which covers everything from political economy to genomic sequencing, mathematical modeling, and so on. It's the kind of multidisciplinary um, perspectives we need, I think, to sort through the complexities that we've had to deal with over time. So our project, um, this is what our project was set up to do to you know, really just understand what these travel measures were that were being used, kind of review the evidence on the effectiveness, kind of analyze it as a complex policy issue. Um, and we're moving increasingly towards looking at the equity considerations of these measures. And finally, to try and help policymakers, decision makers to make better decisions or at least follow better processes to make decisions in future if we have to use these sorts of measures. So that's our group and we're, I think, pretty set up to continue our work for some time given the, the many questions that have been raised. So, so what do I want to do? And I've been given, I think, 50 minutes to kind of go through um, you know, this issue and, and to spark a conversation among us and those of you who are online is to start by giving a bit of background and um, you know, we all, we all are familiar with these measures in our own countries, but I just wanted to give a little bit of background um, to set us up for looking at the evidence and the ethics around this. Um, the, the background is interesting and it's a very much global picture, obviously, uh, but I think you'll all see, you know, different contexts within that. And then I'm gonna look at what we um, see as the evidence around this subject area, what we knew at the time, but also what we know now, and it's very different, um, those two things. And then thirdly, really, I am I feel very much amateur at this. I know the room is filled with experts on ethics, so this is my attempt to try at least to identify some of the tensions that were emerging and still are present around this subject area, what we should have done and what was actually done in particular. And then finally, where I think our research could be most useful is to think about the complexity to bring together those two areas, the evidence and the ethics, and see where we can move forward. Because of course, I think everyone's pretty confident, unfortunately, that this is not the last pandemic that we will see. So we'll 
have to figure it out um, in uh, how we do this better. So let me start with the background. And the background is that if you think back to 2019, the world was a very, very different place than it is now. And it, we may never go back to that world where we were very, um, it was a very mobile world. It was a very interconnected world. Um, the level of population mobility in 2019 was historic. So if we look at just tourist arrivals, what we see is that in 2019, that was a record year of tourist arrivals um, worldwide. Every region had a positive increase in tourism arrivals. Um, there was some uncertainties, you know, there was, of course, Brexit was unfolding. Um, there was some, of course, always geopolitical tensions, but there were also looking ahead, you know, we were anticipating in 2020, the Tokyo Olympics were going to be held. There were major events. There was no inkling that what was about to unfold was going, was going to unfold. And so, again, you know, every region was seeing growth in mobility. It was so much part of our lives uh, worldwide. And then within a few short months, we had this. And from a hypermobile world where there were, you know, hundreds of millions of people moving about for various purposes, we saw um, airports virtually empty. We saw many um, uh, land crossings restricted or in some cases closed. And we saw cruise ships docked and many other types of ships um, being docked and stopped. From, from movement. So it, it was a very um, sharp pivot from what anyone would have, would have predicted going forward. Now, if you also think back in January 30th, uh, 2020, when these events started to unfold, uh, WHO um, made a number of recommendations from that point in the sense that this should not have happened in a way, or at least it, it, you know, how did this happen given what WHO was recommending? So we cast back to 30th of January when WHO declared its public health emergency of international concern, the fake declaration. It did not recommend the adoption of travel or trade restrictions based on the current information that was available. And that was very clear. It was a, a blanket recommendation at the time. A month later, it reiterated that recommendation more or less, but there was a little bit of a, um, a qualifier in a sense that there was a recognition that under some circumstances, and if countries were to engage in uh, careful risk assessment, if there was to be some assessment uh, of measures proportionate to the public health risk that was unfolding, that there would be some uh, temporary use of these measures, and that be, they would be reviewed over time, then WHO considered that permissible, but only under those conditions. And so that was the second um, uh, statement that WHO, WHO made on, that, on this issue. And then a few weeks later, just a couple of weeks later, really, and knowing that, uh, I think, as you remember, uh, countries were um, generally not taking to account you know, some of the really strong recommendations that WHO was making about having to respond to this unfolding pandemic. On the 11th of March, WHO officially declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. And it was really a political statement to, to, um, to push countries to step up uh, and to really try and nip this pandemic, unfolding pandemic in the bud. Those are the events, the three sort of really key declarations that were made by WHO. But when you look at what happened in terms of travel measure use, um, and this is something that our project team has tried to um, tried to document, in each of those, after each of those declarations, what you see is not um, a kind of uh, non-use of these measures, but quite the opposite. So after the January 30th declaration, you see a spike in new measures, um, new travel measures adopted. After the February 29th, you see another spike. But particularly after the pandemic was declared officially, you see a very large spike. And by that point onwards, most countries in the world had adopted some form of travel measure. Many of those were restrictions on travel. And so where does that leave us, I guess, when we think about you know, what, what could have happened, what should have happened? Well. Let's look first at you know, the spread of countries. There certainly wasn't any 
pattern. It was just pretty much almost every country. And I, I, I'm still trying to look for the one country that didn't, maybe one of the Pacific Islands. But generally what you saw was uh, a wide range of measures being adopted. And if you look at this first slide, this is the Our World and Data maps, which we were glued to, we were you know, downloading them every sort of few weeks. Um, what you see is that almost every country in October 2020 was had some form of measures that affected travel. The, the fact that the US isn't highlighted is because there was no data at that time, not that they didn't use these measures. Of course they did. A year later, again, um, a different color pattern, but still very much a global picture. Um, and then what is really also important is that many countries adopted domestic uh, subnational measures uh, to restrict travel. Um, and this was a, a pattern that again was something very new, very um, widespread and changing over time, but it wasn't an unusual thing to have some sort of internal domestic restriction on travel. So our, our group was really then set up and we were starting to um, try to, I guess, just describe what was happening. And that was actually more challenging than one would expect. So if you think back to these measures, they were adopted very quickly. There was, things were unfolding in real time and that they were being called very different things. So people would use lots of different terms. Uh, there was a few data sets that were being produced that kind of was tracking what was happening. So what our one key task of our team is to try and create this global data set and, of, of you know, sort of standardized terminology to see what different countries were doing. So we'll be producing these graphs, which really kind of summarize what different jurisdictions did. So this is the one for Hong Kong that we produced. And you know, you can just learn a lot from what happened by looking at these kind of graphs that Hong Kong went quite early. This goes from January 2020 to um, around April 2021. And you'll see that Hong Kong was an early adopter, that they adopted measures and kept them in place, um, that the, the, the large part of the story is that they closed a lot of their points of entry and then fortified a lot of the ones that were left open. Um, and they used quarantine and testing very early on, uh, whereas um, earlier than a lot of other, other jurisdictions. You compare that with say Canada, which is a, a country we've been studying, of course, very closely and you know you can see patterns very different you see a slightly later adoption of some of these measures but also different measures so testing didn't come in until quite quite a bit later in um, sort of late 2020 early 2021 quarantine didn't happen until spring 2021 and so on um, the details aren't important but what I think is is important is that really we need to understand what each jurisdiction did if we're ever going to figure out you know, how effectively it was done, um, what impact these, these measures had. And again, this is very sort of basic description, but I think it's really important to do for as many jurisdictions as we can, and, and we are getting there. Um, of course, in Australia here, all of these measures were used and you know, be a very interesting graph if we are able to do this um, for Australia. What you see is probably the adoption of these measures and then just a long line <laughs> as it was just remained in place. Probably an easy graph to do in a way in terms of <laughs> creating this case study. Um, the key things are really that first of all, WHO, um, despite you know the kind of uh, recommendations it made, found all of the member states adopting some form of travel measures by April, 2020, that there were a wide range of measures adopted when they were applied, who they were applied to, uh, whether it's countries or, or different populations. Um, countries largely had these exemptions, you know, you could, um, it, depending on whether it, it might be because of your, your occupation or some sort of national status, um, but they exempted a lot of countries, exempted a lot of populations from these measures. Um, also unprecedented was the duration of the way these measures were applied. So a very prolonged use and a lot of change over time. So a very dynamic picture um, that you'll see in most cases, perhaps not so much Australia, but certainly in most countries. And finally, um, I think from, from my point of view as a, as a global health governance scholar, the, um, 
lack of uh, coordination across different countries. So countries did what they thought was right uh, for their own jurisdiction. So very diverse use of these measures. The reaction was interesting. Um, some, and particularly international uh, law scholars, legal scholars, were very against the use of these measures and really backed up WHO saying that this was a violation of the international health regulations, which is of course the international treaty that um, that countries commit to when they are responding to international disease outbreaks. And according to the scholars, you know, there were a number of papers published saying that this was a violation of international law. But then other scholars, and actually legal, this is a legal scholar, Caroline Foster, argued that actually it isn't a isn't a violation of international law. And she made the argument, you know, there is a sense of um, uh, an ability to adopt these measures in a precautionary sense based on what um, another treaty, which is the sanitary and phytosanitary agreement under the World Trade Organization, made the legal argument that the IHR could actually be applied using those kind of uh, as a precedent. And therefore, you know, this this was kind of a similar situation. So there was a there was certainly a lot of argument about, you know, whether these measures were appropriate, whether they, they were legal. Uh, and so on. So that that's really the, the the background to where we were when we picked up this story. And there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, a lack of, um, I guess, precedent to build on in terms of our understanding of this unfolding events. So then I'm going to talk a little bit about the evidence then. And this is the evidence, of course, which has unfolded over three years. Uh, we have to be really careful not to, I guess, look back and um, apply the lens that we, what, what we know now versus what we knew then. Uh, that's really important to separate because, you know, we have 2020 hindsight. That's, that's um, important to distinguish uh, when we interrogate some of the decisions that were made. Um, but I think the, having said that, the, the important thing really to recognize is that in 2020, when these measures started to be adopted, the evidence base was very much uh, against the use of these measures. Previous events uh, and disease outbreaks showed that either they were unnecessary or that they were too, that the price to be paid was too high and, and could be very counterproductive to the kind of cooperation that we need across countries. So um, the, the, the received wisdom really was that they, they were frowned upon. Um, so take HIV uh, and AIDS, for example. So you know, we, we forget, but you know, when HIV first came on the scene, there was a lot of reaction to allowing people who um, were traveling and potentially uh, were, were infected with HIV, um, that whether or not they could come into uh, your jurisdiction. And many, many countries actually restricted travelers at that time. We know a lot more about the virus. There's a lot more treatments, of course, if the, the, the situation has changed. But in 2021, UNAIDS still reports that um, a large number of countries still do restrict um, travelers who um, are potentially or are actually uh, HIV positive. So 46 countries, territories, and areas still either require testing or do not allow people to come into the jurisdiction through their jurisdictions. So that is generally frowned upon in the public health community, of course. It's not something that is considered necessary, and it's also very uh, discriminatory. Uh, so, so it's not something that is encouraged. The other um, example is, of course, the Ebola virus in 2013-2015, when uh, West Africa was the subject of um, particularly air travel uh, restrictions. 33 countries, including Canada and Australia, applied travel restrictions by air and um, to the region and from the region. And this was again, based on not much evidence that it was very useful. And of course, you know, the virus wasn't spread by um, air travelers, of course, it was considered very discriminatory. And um, it actually uh, really hindered healthcare workers from helping in the region, essential supplies from arriving uh, and reaching the affected regions. So generally, again, frowned upon, not useful, counterproductive to use travel measures. And so we get to then January 2020, and you know, the looking back, the evidence was very thin. That you know, that I guess um, journalists started to write that WHO had recommended this and wasn't really very um, 
I guess, very clear about what the evidence was. Um, there's, there seemed to be a constant debate, you know, did WHO actually base its recommendation on evidence? Um, others were writing that, you know, the evidence isn't there or it is there and, and they don't work. So again, still contested at that point uh, when, when these uh, events started to uh, continue to unfold. Since then, over the last three years, there's been a, um, of course, a flurry of studies about travel measures and various, um, using various methodologies. And I just want to touch on some of these because they're important to, I guess, uh, at least acknowledge. And so just to understand what we know now um, coming out of um, three years of the use of these measures. The first is that a really clear um, evidence from largely genomic sequencing studies that travel is um, deeply uh, implicated in the spread of the virus worldwide. And it's not a probably a revelation. You know, the virus didn't swim, fly, and walk around the world. It was travel, it was moved by travelers uh, to different geographies. And that's something that, you know, is, is not um, surprising, but having that evidence to show that was very important. So there's been various studies uh, of repeated introductions and seeding of seeding events into different jurisdictions. And th this is a couple of studies from 2020 to show that. Um, and, and this type of analysis is difficult to refute. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't, um, it, it's very difficult to argue that, that when you're, you're tracking the virus and so on. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that travel measures are warranted, but it, it certainly does uh, clarify that travel is something that needs to be considered, especially in a globally interconnected world that we had in 2020. Um, a different way of looking at it is the role of travel and travel measures on virus introductions. So um, studies have tried to look at, you know, what would have happened if there weren't use of travel measures or that, you know, if, if you did use travel measures, how did that impact the number of introductions into a particular jurisdiction? And so this is a study um, which predicted, compared the predicted level of virus introduction uh, with or without and without travel measures into Australia and, um, and other jurisdictions. And the, you know, the, 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 what the graph shows is that the, the solid line is the sort of lesser level of introductions into Australia versus what would have happened <laughs> if the government had not restricted travel into the country. And so there's something like, a, you know, it um, lowered the introductions by about 87, uh, over 87%. So that's another way to kind of look at this and, and to, you know, start to build the picture of, well, you know, what use these travel measures had. Uh, the similar studies have been done for other jurisdictions who have also used these measures. Um, a study that we, we um, we did for our group is kind of just look at um, the evidence around um, the effectiveness of travel measures during that early few months on um, virus importations <laughs> and um, particularly um, kind of the, you know, the evidence around the, the restrictions on movements within China, but also in and out of China in those few first few weeks, first few um, months. And generally the the evidence uh, suggests that rap those countries or those jurisdictions that introduced restrictions to travel from those jurisdictions um, were effective at slowing the um, importation of the virus into their own jurisdictions. And the, it, it ranged from you know, a few days to a few weeks, uh, but you had to do it very quickly and you had to do it quite stringently. And a um, few countries did that. Um, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, South Korea, I think were, were some of them. But that, you know, this is not an enduring impact, but certainly it was uh, a, a positive impact for, for public health. Uh, so that was our general finding. It, it, that we did find that a lot of the studies were modeling studies and a lot of them were of limited, I think, um, or lower quality because some of the assumptions made were very different across different studies. But generally that was the conclusion and our conclusion really coincided with the Cochrane review that was going on pretty much similar time. They came up with very similar findings that you know, there is some evidence um, of effectiveness of the use of travel measures at controlling the spread of this SARS-CoV-2 virus 
but you know we needed better better quality data, so it's not conclusive, but certainly um, it was very different from what was previously believed that you just don't use these measures; they're just not useful at all. So that suggested something was different. Um, and then I guess the other studies that were we caught our eye and we found was useful to think about was that. As, as you'll remember, there were so many different what, what are called non-pharmaceutical interventions being introduced. And this study by um, Hoggett and colleagues were looking at, you know, what, what are the measures that are most effective at reducing transmission? Um, which the ones should we keep? Which ones are actually not that useful? And they, they based their methods on, I guess, regression analysis and tried to look at, you know, the, 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 the data that was out there around infections, and link them to different interventions, which you'll see there's a, there's a long list of them. And the conclusion was that um, really that social distancing and travel restrictions came out on top in terms of the most effective ways to reduce transmission of this virus. Uh, and, and again, against, you know, kind of the received wisdom at the time, and it, it was another piece of evidence that somehow, you know, there is something here that is useful in terms of, um, in terms of uh, responding to a, an unfolding pandemic. So, so that's a mixed bag of studies, you know, and I, and I know there are a lot of other ones out there, but that's kind of where we kind of came in and thought, well, if that's the case, you know, that there is all of this kind of emerging evidence, um, how can we make sense of this, especially when different countries were doing so many different things at different times and it was changing uh, in real time. It was very, very difficult to study something that was so dynamic. But one of the things we um, wanted to look at, uh, and, and I guess a final point about evidence is that when we're trying to make sense of all these different studies and these comparative analyses, uh, one of the problems with the evidence was that the terminology was just all over the place. And so people you know, looking at genomic sequencing, people looking at policies, they lacked a shared um, uh, shared definitions, um, shared terminology that really reassured us that they were comparing apples and apples instead of apples and pears. So uh, it is probably because of the newness of the practices and the rapid way in which they were introduced, uh, but and, and also the rapidly politicized or you know sort of media frenzy around these measures that terms were just bantered around. Bantered around. So. Uh, bandied around travel bans, travel restrictions, border closures, border restrictions, I mean, all sorts of things, which often you didn't get any detail about what that meant. So country X would really just close their borders, right? And, and you just assume that there's some big wall, some door shut. But actually, when you look at it, actually, people were still coming through the border. Like Canada was a good example where the political message was that we've closed our borders. So you can be reassured that you're, you know, safe within. But actually, you know, there was a lot of traffic still coming through for trade purposes. There were trucks and, you know, all sorts of sort of work, essential workers, as, as we ended up calling them. So comparing, you know, trying to figure out what actually countries did was was um, was difficult. So we wrote this paper and we tried to kind of tease out, you know, what measures were they were talked being talked about, but also what kind of movements were being restricted? Was it people or was it trade? Um, was it, were they adopted by the public sector and largely they were, but there were some by the private sector, some airlines were canceling flights. You know, that's a travel uh, measure of some kind and that came from the private sector. So nobody was studying that. Uh, what level of jurisdiction? Is it just international? Well, we know very much that it was also subnational. There are also regional measures with the you know, European Union. Um, so that was, that was adding to the, the confusion in some ways. And where and at your point of the journey were these measures being applied? So somewhere pre-border before people were even heading to the airport um, or to you know getting into their vehicles. Some were applied right at border crossings, points of entry, and some were applied after you arrived and you had to do, for example, testing, quarantine and so on afterwards once you arrived at your destination. So there was lots of variation there. And then finally, there was lots of variation in who was targeted in terms of population, jurisdiction, how long these measures were, um, uh, what kind of you know, um, penalties there were, what kind of exemptions and so on. So 
when we tried to tease all this out and just show that there were so many dimensions that needed to be looked at, that we we're trying to elevate the level of evidence that was being collected and hopefully come to some sort of standardized way of looking at this and thinking about this. But at the time, over the last few years, it hasn't been the case and still isn't. Um, so all of this to say is that the evidence is partial, very messy, very evolving, um, and, and not necessarily coherent in its in what it was um, saying to us. But I think the key thing is it certainly wasn't saying, no, never use these measures. They're totally pointless. I think there was enough there to say there is something there. So now I wanna just turn to a little bit about the ethics and um, you know, there's an imperfect context of evidence. Um, there's also a sort of very messy situation with, with ethical considerations. And, and again, I'm conscious very much of the, <laughs> the experts in the room, but I, I do wanna say that like that, like the scientific evidence, the consensus has been elusive around this area of, um, uh, in terms of the sort of values and the norms that should be driving this. So I'll start with a quote really from um, Maxwell Smith that I know Diego, you've written with Max and uh, Ross Upshur who's a former colleague of yours. And, you know, it's just trying to find something to hang on, uh, hang these considerations on. And the, the important point about this uh, quote really is that there's no one, and you, I don't need to tell you this, but there's no one ethical framework to guide these sorts of difficult decisions. It is a very contested area. And, and so trying to land on something, you know, that could really bring the evidence together is something maybe that is um, like a unicorn. But, um, but it's important to, to just acknowledge that, that this is a really um, complex area for trying to, to sift through and so what we really, um, what we tried to, we're trying to do is just figure out, you know, what, what is the menu of ethics out there and how do we apply, how might we apply them and which of them actually are relevant to this particular issue area. And so, um, you know, we've been discussing in our group around the kind of values that could guide um, an ethical approach to pandemic um, responses, and this one is for, of course, influenza outbreak, which uh, it has, you know, this, this, there's a precedent there and people trying to define how we would respond to an influenza outbreak. And these are the, some of the, some of the values that have been discussed in the past. And I, I took this as a starting point because, you know, we, we prepared for influenza and we got COVID. So um, there might be some transferability here in terms of what we might take away from our previous planning. Uh, one of them, of course, is, and this is something that is often you will hear from policymakers who made the decision to use these measures, that we need to, to uh, make the decision to protect um, the public from a, a severe <laughs> harm. And this would justify the use of, of these measures. And so, um, of course, Scott Morrison made this argument many times that there were so many deaths prevented because Australia had decided to really restrict its borders in a quite a, um, a consistent and continual way and, and a relatively stringent way compared to most countries. So that is his sort of, I guess, you know, fallback argument that, you know, if we hadn't done that, um, then we would have far more, more deaths. And I guess that study I showed previously kind of supports that. So that's one consideration, um, difficult, I suppose, to argue that. Was there proportionality? Was there, you know, that the measures that were taken, did they justify the kind of impacts that were not only on public health, but one might argue, yes, you, you know, you saved 30,000 lives or whatever it was, um, but did it, was it justified by the kind of wider impacts? And these were economic impacts, of course, but also social impacts. So we all have you know, are, have heard stories, really heartbreaking stories of people who could not travel during the last three years and who, um, who have had, you know, very severe impacts on their lives because of that. So there's that weighing of argument and I don't have an answer for it, but this one sort of value that, that could, we, could, we could discuss later on um, after this talk. Certainly, I know that this country has seen many, many stranded nationals uh, we never had that in Canada. We have a charter of rights which didn't allow the government to restrict the travel, uh, the mobility of Canadians in and out of the country. 
in, in such a way. And I know Australia does not have such a charter of rights. Um, but this is really, I guess, part of the reflection as we go forward is that do Australians feel that that was um, uh, a proportionate response, um, taking into account the kind of human impacts that these measures had. And I think we'll, we won't get consensus, to be honest. Um, you know, people will feel very differently about this. Uh, the principle of equity is something that we're we're hoping to get funding for in a project. Um, obviously, you know the government in in some countries applied these measures to everyone coming in and out of the of their jurisdictions. Others had exemptions, and um, so people could still come in under certain conditions. Certain people could come in. Others were completely barred from coming into a country. Uh, and obviously then, you know, we have to reflect on was this equitable? How equitable was this? Who was disproportionately impacted? Um, was it a fair system? Um, and bearing in mind that, you know, this, these things were being um, uh, rolled out in real time. There, were being, there were adjustments, uh, certainly in both Canada and Australia, you see the changing of policies over time, the tweaking of exemption categories and so on. But that is something that we may judge these measures on. And again, I'll set those aside as a consideration. It's not um, straightforward, but certainly there was an equity in terms of who was impacted uh, and, and the costs and benefits that were distributed um, across populations. Um, and we also know, of course, that there were opportunities to be quite discriminatory about the use of these measures. And uh, sorry to <laughs> trigger everyone to put his picture up, but you know, remember back in the early pandemic, um, if, even before the pandemic, U.S. President Trump was using the migration issue in a very um, unpleasant way and was built his campaign on this wall that he wanted to build. And so there's this association uh, of travel measures with this sort of rhetoric. And um, it's, it's hard to deny that this rhetoric can become quite uh, volatile, but also quite... Um, I guess quite um, hard to distinguish between measures that you're taking for more public health purposes versus these kind of discriminatory purposes. And so they become very uh, enmeshed and, and, and difficult to unravel. But there's always a risk of how these measures are used and whether they are you know, inequitable in terms of the, the different populations. Um, and then I guess the other value that I wanted to put on the table was whether these measures were taken in an open and transparent way. So at least in Canada, the, the, the message to people who were questioning, you know, is this really, you know, necessary? Why are these measures keep changing? Um, there was always that, well, you know, we're just following the, the science, we're evidence-driven and so on. In general, there wasn't a lot of detail on, on you know, what was the science you were being informed by? <laughs> Um, and so there was a lack of transparency in how these decisions were made on what basis and that you just had to, you know, accept that somehow somewhere someone was pouring over the scientific literature that was emerging. Um, there was also an, an incredible amount of confusion, um, especially in countries where the rules kept changing. And if you were lucky enough to leave Australia and try and navigate through into other countries, their rules were different. They could actually change while you're in flight. And I, I did hear stories of that. You know, you get on a plane, by the time you land, the, the rules had changed to the country that you were going to, and you no longer complied with them, especially if you had to bring a, a test, you know, that you couldn't actually get on the plane. Um, that, that caused a lot of confusion. So it was, it was chaotic, um, for sure. And, and that, again, that doesn't lend itself to openness and transparency in terms of process. The, the, I guess the final set of values that I think would be worth maybe thinking about is that of um, solidarity and um, whether, the, whether these measures created solidarity and accountability of, you know, who, about who uh, were the consequences? Did people, you know, we're all in this together. Were the measures fair in the sense that they tried to they were complied with by people they were enforced and and it was you know um, considered a sort of uh, a process of 
I guess, uh, effective implementation. And these are just some of the headlines we had in Canada. I don't know if you, I guess you wouldn't have um, maybe so many because we had so many people still traveling, but there were very prominent people on the one hand, you know, making policies and the other hand, jumping on airplanes and going on holidays. So it was a, a sense of real hypocrisy and that actually, this isn't a really a, a principle of solidarity. You, you, you know, pe some people were just feeling very, um, that this is a very unfair system and there was no accountability. People were not being held to account. And as time went on, um, there was a lack of faith in the, in the system. So public trust began to erode. So all of these values really, you know, could, they, they kind of swirl around and we really haven't had time to pause and I guess you interrogate these, these measures in those sorts of ways. And there's a whole list of other values I'm sure that we could, we could talk about, especially with a room full of ethicists. Um, and so that leaves us with a very kind of messy situation. We have evidence that is unfolding over time in real time, and it's you know, not necessarily coherent. We have a swirl of values which are complicating the picture, which aren't really um, talked, you know, talked through. There wasn't a public forum where you could discuss these things. There just wasn't time. Maybe you know, things were moving so fast, and we come to this. You know, what is the way forward? And you know, this picture really sums up what is that way forward in such a, a sort of tangled. Um, set of um, ethics and, and the evidence, the road ahead is indeed very complex. And it's made complex by, first of all, you know, the virus itself. The virus itself is not done with us. And we are, um, you know, still really in a situation of great uncertainty, for me, great concern. That blob of yellow uh, subvariance to the right is, you know, it's just hovering there. And we just don't know what's coming. So it, the virus continues to mutate, continues to change, and that in itself is creating this uncertainty uh, that we have to deal with. This, this scientific complexity, you know, the the, uh, the duration of our immunity, the the effectiveness of vaccines, the um, the severity of this any new variants that may come along, the vaccine escape qualities, and so on. So there's lots of uncertainty with just the vaccine itself. There's also uncertainty around the evidence and I described <laughs> some of the evidence that suggests that travel measures can be useful. Um, but the foundation on which it's based, um, I, I suggested as well, given the terminology and given the kind of varying methodologies and also the lack of data that is consistently um, collected and shared is limited. So we still don't really have a good sense of you know, the effectiveness uh, in terms of you know, which measures should we put in place, say we do get a new variant that is highly concerning, what are the measures we should put in place, uh, and so on. So there's continued scientific complexity, and you know we have to continue with that work uh, because there is this um, likely um, need to make those decisions again, and the whole question of how do we apply the precautionary principle still hasn't really been resolved and it certainly isn't legally something that is in place. So that's, that's again, uh, um, adding to the complexity. Of course, I've already described, there's this whole set of ethical issues that we um, hopefully can talk about uh, in this, in this uh, next little while. And there are of course, different frameworks that we could apply to think about this, these issues as well. Um, I've heard, I've read, you know, Tricia Greenhaug, who's a, a UK academic who's written very uh, clearly about these issues, has made the point that we seem to be driven by clinical ethics and really what we have lost sight of is public health ethics mm -hmm. in terms of managing this, this uh, virus. And, you know, the, how do we reconcile this? Where does travel measures land in this kind of really complex space? Um, so eventually, you know, we're going to have to um, face this difficult situation, especially for decision makers about these trade-offs that we're continually making. And it's inevitable that we make these trade-offs, but can we make them in a more informed, uh, informed and reasoned way? Um, these trade-offs lead to very different 
outcomes and they are uh, trade-offs that have both material costs and benefits, um, but they're also, uh, they have other, you know, sort of um, impacts on social values and, and, and how we want to govern ourselves. So, you know, there's, there's this that we're grappling with in terms of trying to make sense of what we do going forward. Um, we did write a very detailed, based on, you know, what I've just said, we tried to write a very detailed case study of the Canadian use of travel measures over the last couple of years. And we tried to bring together um, how politics and evidence really um, into that, you know, how it inf influenced the kind of decisions that were made. And the basic argument we made was that there was this gap in evidence that policymakers then um, did take a precautionary approach, but um, at the time kept stating that they were driven by evidence that wasn't actually there. In the meantime, there was this real vacuum and the, the more you know, political aspects became, I guess, uh, to, became to fill that vacuum and created a kind of path dependency where they couldn't really change the policy by that point um, in, in a substantial way. But the, the main point is that this coming together of values and evidence throughout the pandemic is something we have to hold our hands up to rather than keep coming back to the, you know, the, the kind of claims that somehow this was driven by, by evidence. And I think that's hopefully somewhere we'll get to. Um, so I don't know how much time I have. I probably am running out of time, but I just wanted to then take you just to the, where, where do we go forward from this? You know, I, I'm not gonna leave you with, it's complicated because I think that's kind of always a pop out. Um, so I wanted to just give you a sense of where we think we're heading and where we could make contributions to this area. So if you go back to the IHR and particularly article 43, it does set out some criteria for when what are called additional health measures, including travel restrictions, can be used by states parties when um, outbreaks occur. And um, they, you know, here, here they are, and I don't need to read them out, but they, it does set out a list of criteria, which I think still holds, as long as we can improve on the availability of scientific evidence that we can um, really think through what are the, what do we mean by dignity and human rights and fundamental freedoms and so on. So I don't necessarily advocate for a need to revise the IHR. It may be that it's the measures are there uh, or the criteria are there, um, but it does tell us that um, something didn't happen that should have happened. It's 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 there already in the IHR. So why didn't you know the uh, events unfold the way that perhaps we would have expected? And I remind you, you know, going back to what WHO was declaring in 2020 that it was a very um, you know, difficult situation, but they did make, you remember I, had, I said that they made this kind of slight qualification in the recommendation on 29th February, and I think that actually this is where there may be a glimmer of hope. So they mentioned this idea of risk assessment, and interestingly, you know, it's something that is not, it's not new to, to the IHR. Certainly, um, you know, we use risk assessment quite uh, extensively when we're trying to deal with uh, outbreaks, of course, and in fact, um, when um, WHO realized you know, all these countries were adopting travel restrictions and other measures, that clearly that there was um, something that wasn't quite right about the IHR. So by December 2020, WHO had put out these uh, this risk assessment tool to say, okay, you're going to use these measures, then here's a tool that you might use to kind of think through whether and what measures you're going to use. And that was followed in July, 2021 with kind of technical considerations. So they were trying to think through this and trying to insert a kind of more methodological systematic approach to this than the chaos that was clearly unfolding uh, at, at that time. So we wanted to take that as a jumping off point. And I should say in the IHR also, you know, if, you, if a country has an event and decide needs to decide whether to report it to, to WHO, there's this kind of decision instrument that you follow. And some of you may, who are working in infectious diseases will be familiar with this kind of decision uh, tool. And you work your way through and, you know, there's certain types of events where if, if, they, if it, you know, has um, 
a significant risk of international spread, or if it's a new type of event, if it's an unknown pathogen or so on, then you do report this event to WHO. So there, there is a kind of model to follow. And so what um, WHO tried to do is create this kind of similar approach and um, create this kind of diagram where you would get an event and you would decide, you know, you kind of work your way through. Uh, and so this is available on the um, December, 2020, document. So, you know, with very, very much about, based on data, of course, you, know, you have this data to from testing, um, you can track it over time. Are the infections going up? Are they going down? How many travelers coming in are testing positive and from which jurisdiction? So they're trying to figure out which variables to use. How could governments decide? Um, and of course, this wasn't really useful for Australia because Australia had already made the decision that nobody was coming in. Um, or if everybody was coming in, they were going to quarantine regardless, right? So it, this was for countries that were trying to keep travel flowing um, and even to, to um, remove some of those kind of more blanket um, restrictions. So this, this is what WHO was trying to do. And what we found actually, WHO wasn't alone. There was actually, um, we identified 11 other methodologies that tried to take this approach and tried to um, find a way of deciding um, how, you know, what level of risk and how do we use travel measures to mitigate that risk. So this is a report that's going to come out soon, um, published by the uh, Migration Policy Institute that we kind of reviewed these methodologies. The, the main thing, though, is that there was really not a lot of consistency in what was considered um, in these methodologies. They, they were, there was a lot of variation. There was a lot of variation in what the risk was seen to be, um, who was at risk, whose risk is important, um, and even um, you know what your risk tolerance should be. There was just so much variation. And um, that in itself is a finding, of course, that everybody was struggling to try and apply this general approach. Uh, but I would say that you know it's useful to look at those and then to try and maybe um, match those to some empirical evidence of you know, which ones were maybe more or less effective. But the main thing I think we came away with is that it's not just a technical issue. And, you know, we, we come up with the most amazing <laughs> decision tool, but if we don't recognize that this is not just a, a technical, we're not gonna solve this with data. This is not just a technical question um, that there are very much normative uh, aspects. So we tried to develop our own, so, and this is, I have to say, this is just a really first attempt at trying to set out some of the key decision points that need to be made if we were to have another event that you know is unfolding and whether we need to use travel measures or not. Um, and it, it is really a work in progress, but the, the key things to point out first of is that um, we, we went beyond just the technical considerations. And this, this was really important then, in that we tried to bring together, I guess, the evidence and the ethics into one decision instrument. So at the top, you would have some sort of notifiable event, WHO. Maybe it's like a, you know, um, some, some kind of uh, pneumonia that's, you know, un, uh, unusual. And um, you'd start to think about the pathogen characteristics. What is its transmissibility? What is its severity? Um, is it novel? You know, there's all sorts of very clear characteristics. And there's some that will be more alarming than others, obviously, and some um, less alarming. So we match those to say, well, do, you know, is, is this something that warrants travel measures? Most probably won't, and that's going to the left. But if you have a sense of maybe this is something that travelers could spread quite rapidly across the world, then you move down and then you think about your jurisdiction. You think about your healthcare capacity, you think about your demographics. Um, do you have a lot of you know, um, uh, susceptible uh, people? Geography, all sorts of characters that we can you know, work on, the, on what those characteristics are. And then you move down and if, if you feel confident that this is not something that's concerning to your jurisdiction, you can go left, but otherwise keep going down. And then you would consider this is where the, the ethics come in, the values, the norms, you know, what is it that you value in your society? Who do you value? What do you value? Um, what are your priorities when it comes to these, this, this response? 
And so that's where, you know, these gray boxes or triangle uh, rectangles are, where you start to think about these things in a kind of um, transparent way that you, you integrate and you recognize that these things are important. This is what's this will also drive your decisions. This happened, but it was always very much either denied or, um, you know, done behind closed doors. There's not a lot of discussion. So we need to have those conversations before this, these events happen. This then shapes your response strategy. So it's not some, you know, fact-based strategy. You know, countries decided on their response strategy based on their priorities. And that's why you see so much variation. You have to do all of this, and then you get to the point where you can assess risk in terms of travel measures specifically based on what your response strategy is. If you decide to go zero COVID, then you have one particular way of seeing what the hazard is, who are the people at risk, and so on. If you decide to go with a, a mitigation strategy, you're going to have a very different risk assessment. And all this then you know, is, is a loop, so you, you have to evaluate as you go. And I say, this is only the first attempt at trying to just kind of visualize what the decision-making process would be and to try and integrate the complexity. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done, a lot of um, thinking through, and also what's behind each of those little shapes uh, is very important. So that's really the end of my talk though. And, and just to leave you with that as something that might be taken forward, it may not need an IHR revision. Uh, it could be an appendix. And then, um, you know, um, that might be in itself uh, an improvement to what happened. But the, just leave you some key messages, I guess. One is that what's happened is really unprecedented. We have not had this situation where we've had widespread and prolonged use of travel measures um, uh, to respond to, to such a, an event. And, it, and it's happened because we had a novel virus and because we had global interconnectedness historically like never before. So it was a very different context. I think we have to recognize that. The second thing is that we saw decision makers make decisions in real time in, in the most difficult circumstances with limited and evolving evidence and very contested norms and values. These were all swirling around. I would not have liked that job. You know, it's, it's the most difficult choices that were made. And so, you know, very much not trying to dump on those, um, those poor souls that had to make those decisions, but really try and understand the experience and to try and see if they can be um, supported and improved in terms of the processes that were, um, that had to be, um, that were undertaken. Thirdly, that despite, you know, um, WHO's advice was to not use these measures um, and we need to get away from, um, away from just blanket travel restrictions are bad, um, to recognizing that there can be appropriate use of those measures, that they are a wide range of measures. And the idea is not to restrict travel, but to sustain and manage human mobility despite these events happening again. It's kind of a different way of seeing it, but I think really important it, um, that if we can find ways of framing it as enabling rather than restricting, I think that's a, a much a more, more useful way forward. Um, Obviously, research has to continue. There's so much more to learn about this, and the evidence base needs to improve. The, but forums like this will also enable us to have discussions about the, the norms and values that are behind this research, but also behind the policy decisions that were made. So eventually, we, you know, if we can integrate these two things together, and um, we, we hopefully will will move forward with this and maybe have a framework as as I've described, something like it. Um, and then finally, I think to, and we all have a stake in this, if we want to keep traveling going, is to put in place the enablers of better science and policy on travel measures. We have so many data problems. We have so many uh, blind spots. Uh, there are opportunities to use big data, to use all sorts of interesting ways of get, getting better science, but also creating the governance structures to have better policy processes that can bring that science uh, and ethics together. So I think that's really me. Um, I, I really wanna thank you for listening and for um, inviting me to share what we've been working on. Uh, it's, it's been one of the most difficult policy issues I've ever worked on. I uh, never thought it would be so complex. So I, I appreciate 
any advice and collaboration, especially in Australia, where you had to live through this. Um, I think it was a very different experience for you than it was for me. But I think we can learn from each of these experiences and to, um, I think, be better prepared the next time we may need to use these measures. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the She Research Podcast. You can find a transcript of Professor Lee's talk in the show's notes. We'll be taking a little break over the summer here in Australia, and we'll be back with you in early 2023 with new episodes and a new host. Dr. Diego Silva will be taking over with the She Research Podcast. It's been my pleasure to accompany you through these interesting talks. SheePod is produced by She Network and edited by Madeline Goldberger. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Bye.